Now, over the last several uh, weeks, uh, last couple months now, actually, we've been uh, memorizing the Romans Road. We've been memorizing the Romans Road, and we've been looking at several different verses within the Romans Road. Uh, the first one was Romans 3.10, Romans 3.10, and it says, what? Does anybody know Romans 3.10? I, I said last time that we were together that I would try to pick somebody. Does anybody brave enough to quote Romans 3.10? Anybody here brave enough to quote Romans 3.10? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Great job quoting directly from the Bible as I saw you were. <laughs> okay, 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 fine, fine, fine. How about Romans 3.23? Does anybody know Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yes, but currently we are actually on Romans 5.8. Does anybody know Romans 5.8? Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? Uh, okay, say it together as a congregation. But good job, good job. We have been memorizing these verses, and we believe what we believe because of these verses. They are foundational to our knowledge. People over the years, over thousands of years, had tried to disprove these words. And we use these words when we're talking to other people. And the only thing the people that have tried to discredit these words have done is prove their accuracy again and again and again. These words are reliable. This is where we get our authority. This is why we can confidently go into a lost and dying world. These are what we use in our conversation and say, I know what I know because God's word told me so. You might remember that from the, back in Sunday school. But two weeks ago, we looked at Daniel. If you'll remember, we looked at Daniel. And in Daniel's life, we saw God is always working for you. We saw that God is always working behind the scenes, whether you know it or not. We also notice that we won't be changed by the world by becoming like it. And then finally, we looked at it only takes one person to start the change. We looked at Daniel and how he chose to stand and how his friends stood with him because he first chose to stand. Now today, our sermon is called Into the Fire. Into the Fire. You probably already have an idea just from the title where we're going here, uh, being in the book of Daniel, but we are going into the fire today. Today we're going to look at the consequences of our decisions, the good, the bad, and the really hot. Okay, so open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, verses 25 through 28. We're going to slowly work our way through this in the following chapter. Now, as you're finding your place, I'll give you a little backstory. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. He started having a bunch of dreams. He had dreams that troubled him a whole bunch, and he needed them interpreted. And he was like, okay, I need these interpreted, but I'm going to put my wise men to the test. I'm not going to tell them what the dream actually is. And then they're just going to have to guess, because if they're wise and they actually know things, they're going to be able to tell me what the dream is without me telling them anything, and they're going to be able to tell me the interpretation. Well, the wise men say, well, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. And the king's like, off with your heads. Uh, so he says, basically, you guys all need to die. Here, let's uh, read 25 and 28. If you are there, Daniel chapter 2, 25 through 28. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king, he said, Thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered, and he said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and he said, The secret which the king has dreamed, the wise men, the astrologers, magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream, the visions, your head upon your bed were these. And so he goes into this dream. So Daniel was counted among the wise men. His head was on the chopping block. He wasn't there. He wasn't part of the men that said, we can't tell you. So they went and they summoned him because he's like, whoa, wait a second. I don't want to die for these guys' mistakes. I know the God that knows all things. He goes up in front of the king, says, I can't interpret. No man living can interpret, but God can. And let me tell you what God can say. And so he goes into the dream. The dream is incredibly detailed and it's very important. Uh, we're not going to cover it today because it's really long and nobody wants to sit here and listen to me read a whole bunch of passages right in a row. On your own time, get a chance to look at this. It's really cool because it actually, the, the telling of this dream and the what happens actually tells the foretelling of history for the next several hundred years and the way the kingdoms rise and fall. It's actually really neat the way that it falls out. So they are very accurate, but let's skip all the way to the end of the dream and go to verse 46. Verse 46. Skipped a little bit too far. 46 and 47. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, right at the end of the telling of the dream. He commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. So the king is completely and utterly amazed. And as you already saw from the slide as it jumped forward, point number one today is that he knows all the details. God knows all the details. Now, when I say that out loud, God knows all the details, you're probably like, yeah, duh, everybody that's been to Sunday school knows that. But this is a big, obvious point that's very foundational to everything that we do know and who we are. God knows all of the details. Nothing escapes him. He's the God that we serve, and he tells us, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. In Matthew, he tells us, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So, uh, we've been talking a little bit about family church on Thursday nights. A couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the creation week. In the creation week, on day four, he makes the stars. He says he makes them also. What's, I, I love the way that it says he makes the stars also. We're still struggling to count how many stars are actually out there. We don't honestly know. People kind of guess. There's actually a uh, professor over in Ithaca College, over in Ithaca, uh, and he says that he feels like that there are about one quintillion, one quintillion stars. Just throw out a big number. What, what is one quintillion? Does anybody know? That's a one with 24, or sorry, septillion, sorry, one septillion, and that is a one with 24 zeros after it. That's how many stars God also made, just also made. One with 24 zeros after it. Yeah, they don't teach you to count that high in elementary school. <sighs> Now, if your mind isn't already blown by how many, God, how many stars God made also, just at the, you know, as a whim, uh, if you hold this here, hold your finger, turn backwards to me to Psalms 147. Just hold your finger here. We're going to go backwards just for a second. Go to Psalm 147. I want to grind this point home. Psalm 147. We're going to look at verse 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 
He gave them all names. One with 24 zeros, a septillion, okay? I've, I've, I've got most of your names down, but I mean, that's a lot of names. And he names them and he knows them all by name. That is an infinite understanding. God, like when I say he knows all things, he knows all things. The point that I'm really trying to make here is summed up in Matthew, and it says, so don't be like them. This is Jesus talking about the Pharisees to his disciples. He says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows everything, and he knows your need even before you get a chance to ask. At this very moment right now, Daniel and his friends seem like they could do no wrong. Daniel again shines in front of the king. Last time they were in front of the king, they looked really good. They stood out above the crowd. But God, like we just literally went over, knows everything. He knows what's coming down. He knows what's coming up next in their lives. And he's showing the king through these dreams. So things go well for some time, okay? And this story, most scholars will agree that between the time of this interpretation of dreams and the next part of the story, which is just the next couple of verses, about 15 years passes. 15 years of life just happening. You'll notice that the Bible seems to be all these big events, but we forget that all this time passes in between, just like our lives. We say, wow, our lives aren't crazy busy like they are in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of time that we don't uh, always get when it happens, but there's things going between time. Now, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Just a couple of verses if you kept your finger there. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So I've read this story a couple of times. You may have read this story as well, and I don't know why for the first time, but this is the way God's word works. You reread something that you've read for years, and all of a sudden something new pops out at you, just the way I was going through it. I noticed that in the last chapter, in chapter 2, verse 31, it said that the king made a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. That is what was in his dream. In his dream, last chapter, he dreamed of this. And now, just a couple of years later, all of a sudden, he makes a large, dazzling statue. So it makes you wonder, it makes you wonder... What made him build this 90-foot-tall statue? Was it God that gave him the idea? He had this dream, and the dream was from God, and then all of a sudden you find him building this ridiculously huge statue. And you know what's about to go down. If, you've, if you're familiar with the story, you know where these events lead. And God still gave him this dream. So when you look at a 90-foot-tall statue... Uh, one of the things that you could feel like if you wanted to compare it to anything, it's just short of Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio, which is 124 feet tall. So you're talking like 30 foot difference. So when you're thinking out of gold, he plated this thing with gold and he wants everybody to bow down to this statue, you're thinking that kind of size statue. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did for him. So in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, 
all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So if you look at this list right now that we just read, who did he invite? Did he invite the common folk? No. He invited the leaders. King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to influence the influencers. He's trying to pass something on. So he got all the people that had any kind of authority, as he did before when he grabbed the noble people of Jerusalem, when he pulled them out. He's trying to influence the influencers. Now take a look at verse 5 with me. Daniel chapter 3, verse 5. That at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Ah, so the real purpose has just finally come to light. Not only is the king trying to magnify himself because he just built a 90-foot tall statue of himself, he wants everybody to worship his image. He wants to become God. And in all reality, in his mind, he says, why not? I've done a lot of really good things for these people. It's under my command that the world is doing so well and the armies have crushed all these other opposing nations. It's really me. I'm the one that's doing this, so everybody should worship me. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Your unchecked pride will always lead you away from God. Unchecked pride will always lead you away from God. Nebuchadnezzar is just one in a very long line of both men and women who have gone down this path. Remember Manasseh several weeks ago. We talked about him. He ended up being a very evil king, and eventually he ended up changing his ways, but he, he passed on different lineages, one to his son when he was evil, then a different one to his grandson when he became a godly man. He passed on those different qualities because of his transformation. And that sermon, I mentioned the term father. You might remember me calling that out. It's used as a teaching that is passed on to the next generation. You got this from your father. And you may remember that I had said something about Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees, saying, your father, Satan, in John 8, chapter 8, verse 44. It was Satan who first followed this path. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, there's a very interesting judgment of the king of Tyre. With a simple reading of the passage, it clearly parallels the life of Satan. It's how we started and how his fall. And it goes from 11 to 19, but in verse 17, we're actually going to find these words. Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In Isaiah, we find that because of his pride, he made up his mind and he said to himself, I will become like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. In 2 Thessalonians, we'll find that he has a mode of operation. In 2 Thessalonians, say that three times fast, uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, if you actually get a chance to read it, it's a really good verse. Satan always has this mode. He always exalts himself over God. He'll always set himself up in God's temple. And he'll always proclaim himself to be God. It's the way he acts. It's what he does again and again and again. He does it with different cultures. We know from the book of Revelation that he eventually will do this again. The king had let his pride go unchecked. And slowly he started to believe that it was he who was ultimately in control. We can each do this. 
He felt like he was worthy of worship. It reminds me of a very interesting quote that says, Original sin is the thing about man which makes him capable of conceiving his own perfection and incapable of achieving it. Original sin is that thing about man which makes him capable of conceiving his own perfection. I can think of my own glory, but incapable of achieving it. It's a reminder that our sin is a violent cycle. We think and we look at our own glory and what we could be, but we can never quite get to it. While Daniel took the stand once against what he knew was wrong, it was now time for his friends. Remember, they stood before because Daniel stood. It now became their time. Now is their chance to stand in the spotlight. This proclamation that the king has given out has gone out to everybody. And it's gone out to the leaders, which if you remember from the sermon a couple of weeks ago, his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been promoted up into leadership positions because of their stance, because God ended up actually magnifying and glorifying them because they stood for God. They now became leaders. They were in this crowd. So the proclamation has been given up, and now... Pick up the reading in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage... Okay, hold up for just a second. I skipped over a part. What happens is the horn blows. These men do not bow down. These men just decide not to. They said, you know, we're going to stand for God. They made a decision. Remember last time that we talked about uh, when you make a decision, you have to have a plan, a follow-up. These men knew that there was a chance that things might go south. They knew that things might not end, but they still decided to stand. So these men stand up. And what happens is other people are looking. Other people see them and say, you know what? There are men in your midst, king. These men, these are leaders, because the king is only called leaders, that haven't bowed down to your image and don't worship your gods. These men have been paying attention to these foreigners from day one, because in all reality, these foreigners from day one got the good jobs. They stand out. They don't, they don't worship our gods. They got the really good jobs. There is something about these men that these other leaders don't like, and they want these men gone. So they tell the king, and the king gets very frustrated. He gets completely furious. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, in rage and fury, he gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king because they haven't bowed down. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music, you will fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Okay, so typically at this time and age, direct disobedience like this from the, to the king is automatic death, which shows you how much prestige and how much recognition these three have already gained from the king because he doesn't automatically kill them. He actually says, I'm going to give you a second chance, which is rare. Normally, the king would have just off with your heads, okay? It would have been done. God has given them a place to be able to change the nation because all eyes are now focused on them. The king didn't automatically kill them. He gave them a second chance, which is incredibly rare. So this is where we have to pause and ask, how again did these men arise to this position? How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get to this point in life? 
Earlier in life, they showed that they were humble, and they chose to follow God at any cost when they had nothing. They chose to follow God and be true to what he was telling them to do at the beginning. Now the question remains, what would they do? Fifteen years have gone by, and they've had really good jobs. They probably now have land. They probably now have money. They probably now have families. What is their choice now? They've been consistent. They didn't worship the idol. They stood. They were consistent men of character. As a nation, we tend to idolize celebrities. We look at people that have fame that we see on our TV screens. We try to look similar to them. We try to have haircuts like theirs. We try to wear shoes with their names on them. They're famous, but typically, if you read more than just the advertisements, you'll find that most people that are famous are more famous for their addictions and bad marriages than anything else. You have to be careful who you look up to, be careful of who directs your life. Why do we idolize these people? Be careful of your pride and keep it in check. Like these men, they started off small, and as they grew in stature and prominence, and people knew who they were, they remained humble. They kept it in check. They came from nothing. So never forget your roots. Whether you have nothing underneath you or all of a sudden you have your own company and you have employees underneath you, don't forget to remain humble. God has called you from nothing. Remain humble and follow your God. Now, let's look at the next couple of verses. These men had put their lives perfectly in God's hand. So we're going to look at 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Okay. If that is the cause, our God, whom we also serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. They have learned their lesson from the last sermon. They learned to make their choice. They stood by it, and they stood by their God, and they said, we are not going to budge. We are not going to change. So what happens when you, A, refuse to do what the king is commanded to do, and two, have embarrassed him in front of everyone? What happens? Well, let's read the next verse. Verse 19 says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Apparently the king didn't take the news so well. <laughs> he, uh, he didn't like that. He doesn't like out defiance. So their deaths are ordered, but it seems that he's so angry that a normal fire isn't enough. Now, I don't know how hot their normal fire is, but I do a little bit of blacksmithing every now and then again. Normal fire, like campfire that you have out when you're out camping, is about 1,200 degrees hot. Okay, so 1,200 degrees uh, is melting point for a tin can. You toss a tin can into the fire, it should melt at about 1,200 degrees, which a normal campfire can do. He multiplies that seven times, so say that's the base. That means you can melt any metal we know of, period. It can melt anything. That's really, really, really hot. Now, let's keep reading, verse 20 through 23. 20 through 23. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery burning furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So the fire is so hot, so hot, that the men that are just trying to toss the prisoners in die. It doesn't even say that they fell in the fire. It just seems to give us the impression that they got too close to the fire and then died because of it. That's a hot fire. That's a really, really hot fire. So the king looks up and he sees something that he needs a second opinion on. Follow up with the next verses, 24 through 27. 24 through 27. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and he spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered, said to the king, Ah, uh, true, O king. Well, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth one is in the form like the Son of God. Then King Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whom their body, the fire, had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were the garments affected, and the smell of fire wasn't even on them. So I'm just going to put this out that whenever Jesus shows up, it turns heads. Jesus showing up always turns heads. So my final point that I want to close with today as we're starting to go and wrap this up is the verse that I actually ended last week's message, the Village Mission Sunday, which I hope you really enjoyed. But he says, and lo, I am with you always, which is incredibly relevant for today. And lo, I am with you always in Matthew 28, 20. Could these men have died when they chose to stand for God? Absolutely. I have books, books on martyrs people who have chosen to stand for Christ in unimaginable situations that made unimaginable choices and suffered the ultimate consequence. Most people who stand for Christ in situations like these die. It's rare, very uncommon for Christ to step in and miraculously save, but he does that because it's all about him and he and his glory and his wisdom makes those decisions. If you have trusted Christ, your life is not about you. It has become about him. In fact, it was about him before you even trusted him. You just didn't realize it. And since life is about him, he gets to decide what brings Father the most glory through your life or your death. It's his call. And that's not always an easy truth to acknowledge. Without him, your life is a toss of the dice. You don't really know what's going to happen without God in your life. But with him, you're still not in control. But there's a difference. You can rest assured that the one who counts hairs and names planets and knows all things is now in control of your life when you've placed your life in his hands. If you've trusted your life to him. Now, recap. At this point, we know that God knows all the details. He knows everything, everything that's coming, everything that ever was. He knows all the, uh, the possibilities. He knows it all without even thinking about it. Your and my unchecked pride will always lead us away from God. We can start in a good and godly place. We can. 
But if we don't check our pride every now and then again, we can slowly become like Nebuchadnezzar, feeling like I deserve to be the one that is worshipped. That's where he went. Money and power went straight to his head. And we feel like, oh, we'll never be there. We'll never be there. We can. It's a lie that a lot of us fall into. And finally, Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always. That is whether you are out talking to your neighbor or you find yourself about to go into the furnace for one reason or another. You see, God wants a relationship with you. It started out perfect, but we messed it up. You can't help it because it's in your nature. We call it sin. But he's not going to give up on you. When you finally realize that the way you're trying to do life isn't working, when you finally realize the hill that you're trying to climb will never end, that the pit only deepens and the hurt never heals, God is waiting. God is waiting for you to admit what he has declared as truth. In Romans chapter 9 and 10, Romans chapter 9 and 10, we read, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess in your faith, and you are saved. It's that simple. God sent his son, his willing son, to die in our place, to take our punishment. Death is the only way out of this life, but he gave us an option. If you die to yourself, and you give up the pursuit of becoming your own God, you can humble your life and admit that you can't do it alone. You can accept his gift of life and trust Christ and live. You can start life over and everything will change. That's how simple life changes is right there. Take an opportunity, trust God. Whether you've been with God, following him in a relationship for years, or you're just pondering it right now, I've never done this, I want to. God is willing to help you change your life for the better in ways that you can't even imagine. He doesn't promise a perfect life. He doesn't promise an easy path. What he does promise is that he'll never leave you and he'll always stand beside you no matter what. And that is worth having every day. Um, Father, I do thank you for the opportunity just to look at your message to look at the story of those who have gone before and made the choice to stand for you. They knew that they could very easily have died because of the fire. And I know others have. But Father, I uh, thank you that we can read this story and we can see the miracle. That you can step in at any point you choose. We lifted up a lot of prayer requests at the beginning of this sermon. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do in each of those situations. But as we trust you, we know that you are in control. I know that you have infinite wisdom and you are over every single situation. And though I don't know the outcome, I trust you for it. Father, I ask that you continue to watch over each and every single person here today. Lord, help them to rely on you more and more because they know you. In Jesus' name, amen.